Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we're going to talk some more environment, some more climate policy, some more policy in general, because these things always wind up back at policy. Tyler Devilius joining us on Hertel. He's from the state of Ohio, but we're not going to hold that against him for the purposes of this conversation. He is a Young Voices contributor, well-written, sharp guy. Looking forward to this. Tyler, thank you so much for the time today, sir. Andrew, thanks for having me. Happy to uh, be calling in today from the great state of Ohio. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, well, if it was if it was so great, you know, you wouldn't have to remind yourself how to spell it when you do, you know, football chants and such. <laughs> um, I'm teasing. Look, I I worked in Ohio in the tri-state Kentucky, West Virginia, Ohio area. I worked in Southport, so West Virginia, Ohio. It's just one of them things. I got lots of family in Youngstown, so it's all all in oh, good, man. clean fun. Let's start here though, because we always do this with the policy stuff. Really, the policy is the secondary problem here because we never actually get to the policy because the rhetoric's a train wreck. So start with the rhetoric, and you started in your piece here in Real Energy. Let's start there, because if you don't get through the rhetoric, you never get to the policy, you never get to a substantial argument, you never get to the point counter, because look, some of this stuff is in dispute. We need to have a back and forth on this stuff, Mm -hmm. but we never get there because of the rhetoric. Absolutely. You know, a a recent poll uh, from Pew Research Center found that Americans are are relatively evenly divided. It's 49-47 when asked if President Biden and Democrats, if if their policies are moving us in the right direction when it comes to to climate solutions. And you hit on something there that uh, what we hear from the left far too often are are rhetoric, not solutions. What they want to do is to use this issue, particularly in a time like now, as we're a couple of weeks out from midterm elections, to really divide the country, for there to be a right side and a wrong side. When we do that, we're doing a, a disservice to to our country and, and to the environment uh, because all we're doing is making this a campaign issue and not actually working towards the solution. So the piece that I wrote for Real Clear Energy, what I wanted to do was to highlight these conservative clean energy champions that are working at the state and local level, and particularly at the gubernatorial level, to highlight the actual solutions, uh, the actual progress that's being being made without having to cowtail to to liberal policies. Um, you know, we talk about the fact that whether or not you believe humans are contributing to climate change, we recognize that the climate is changing. But just because the climate's changing doesn't mean our principles have to change. Yeah. And let's follow that up for a second, because this is a matter of principles to some folks, but principles are also shaped by lived experience. And I think there's something happening here 
um, that's a little bit, we're seeing some crossing of political lines and ideology lines. And some of it depends on like, you know, part of the, if you live out in the country, you may be more inclined to be an outdoors person. You may be more naturally inclined to traditional conservation efforts. You may be a hunter or fisherman and you stewardship is a big deal to you. Um, where this, where our radio partner originates out of Wilmington, that's a very progressive city that's surrounded by conservative areas. But environmentalism is an across-the-board issue because it's a coastal tourism, beach, wetland, intercoastal waterway area. So the environment's right in everybody's face. I'm from West Virginia. Everybody talks about it being a red state now. It was cobalt blue for 100 years. But because, you know, we we all understood what coal mining and lumber and things like that done, we just see the environment and climate a little bit differently. I think that's part of this conversation we don't have enough of. Before we get to the policy is like, look, the city folks and let's call it elite, although I'm sick of that term because it doesn't really mean anything. I'm like, sure, the city folks and the academics and the politicians, they talk over everybody's heads some. You really do need to tailor this to what part of the areas you're talking to, because you can get some common ground if you tailor this conversation to where people are living at right now today, right? Absolutely. And, and that's one of the, the reasons that, you know, when it comes to energy policies, really when it comes to most policies across the board, we don't need top-down federal government mandates. What we need are our local solutions. You hit, hit the nail on the head. I come from a Midwest farming family. Um, you know, we we recognize the the need to conserve our land, to be protectors of our land. Um, we don't have to to change the conversation too much, but we go and we talk about um, you know our friends down in Florida who are are still suffering from the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. They see uh, you know changes to to ocean levels. They see changes to weather patterns, um, and and so when we have those different experiences, what can happen is we can take. Governor DeSantis from Florida and take some of his climate resiliency policies that he's working on at the state level and marry those with the clean energy innovative solutions that Governor Holcomb from Indiana are working on. And all of a sudden, out of that, we have uh, a, a solution-based platform that is, is, again, driven in those experiences that you were talking about um, and not just, you know, scientific journals from uh, the academic elites, if you will. Yeah, Tyler DeVillainess. See, I told you I'd mess it up. We practice it and everything. <laughs> Tyler DeVillainess joining us. Um, let's talk about some of those top-down folks, though. Of course, President Biden is the president, so we're going to get more environmental stuff. We know what he said during the buildup. He, of course, he made John Kerry the climate czar, which, let's just be blunt, if you if you could pick a worse caricature for that job that isn't going to reach out and you know gain hearts and minds, that that was probably not the best pick for that. However, uh, government does have a role here. We understand what unfettered industry does. We understand that there needs to be environmental protections on the federal level. Where's the breakdown, though? Give me a ratio. Give me a line. I know it's going to be a little subjective, though. Where's good government stepping in? Like, you know, we don't want to just, you know, strip forest. And, you know, look, I'm from the land of strip mining. It's an, sure. it's an ugly scar on the ground. You know, nobody's disputing that. There also needs to be a balance here. And of course, when it's the federal government, you know, everything's a nail and all they got is a hammer. That kind of applies. Give us a good ratio, though, where good government starts and stops and where practical policies start and stops and where folks being able to live and companies being able to function start and stops. Sure. For me, as, as a conservative, the line for all of that is crossed at the moment government regulation, the moment government mandates starts prohibiting innovation and starts prohibiting the free market. 
I think a great example of that is uh, last year, my organization, the Conservative Energy Network, sponsored a, a tour of the critical mineral mine, uh, Rio Tinto, the Kennecott mine out in Salt Lake City. We had state legislators from around the country who were on this tour with us. And as we're touring this mine, we're seeing those critical minerals that are uh, so important, not only to the energy industry, but really to every industry, to everything that we touch in our daily lives, the computers that we're talking through to our cell phones uh, across the board. And at the end of the tour, one of the government affairs people from Rio Tinto tells the legislators that they're wanting to expand this mining project. And they've been good stewards of land in, in Utah. Um, and, and they've been in the community for over 100 years. But to, for them to expand that project, it is going to cost them twice as much and take twice as long as it would be for them to invest in a similar project in Australia or Canada. Now, make all the jokes you want about Canada, but it's not a third world country. So if you're the CEO of Rio Tinto, a large multinational enterprise, Andrew, where are you going to invest your money? Is it going to be in the project that takes twice as long and twice as much to start to see a return on your investment or a place where you can do that in, in half the time and with half the cost? And, and for us, that's, a, I think, a perfect illustration of the lens that, to, all right, the government, the government should put reasonable regulations to ensure that we're not destroying the environment, to ensure the safety of everyone. But the moment that those become so onerous that they're preventing future development uh, that's made here in America, that's where it starts to become a real issue. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Tyler Devilli is joining us. Here's here's exactly where our more progressive friends kind of paint themselves in the corner. And I think, frankly, the president's stuck in this box right now. They want the green energy revolution. They want battery powered, electric powered, everything, which I think we will get there someday. We are not there yet. And yet, on the other hand, you just touched on it, but we don't want to have this conversation. Those rare earth minerals have to be mined out of the ground. They are mostly controlled, especially things like cobalt and lithium, things like this, by untowards foreign powers that we don't really want to be doing business with, number one. But if we got to do business with them, we sure don't want to be beholden to them. We know the problem with fossil fuels. We know the entanglements with oil overseas when we don't produce enough for ourselves. There has to be a grown folk discussion in here. It's like, yes, we want green energy. Yes, we want a better environment. 
but you're still going to have to have some trade-offs to get that future. You're trading one problem for a new set of problems. And I don't think we do enough good enough job of being realistic with, you're going to have some of the same problems. They're just going to have different names and different things. And then you paint yourself into a corner of this mythical, we're going to have this great thing, but oh God, the oil prices are going through the sky, which is what we have now. And everybody's in a bind all of a sudden. Why can't we just be honest and have that conversation? Because all the data is there. It's two Google searches to see where cobalt's mined at or lithium's mined at. It you know, Time Magazine, rolling like big name, not conservative outlets have run exposés on what this mining and some of the human rights issues and some of the environmental issues with some of this type of mining overseas. Why in the world wouldn't we want to take control of it with our eyes toward our environmental regulation, with our strong EPA production? You think we'd want to be the world leaders in this, but we don't even want to discuss it. Absolutely. And we talk about, you know, President Trump, when he was in office, worked to even up the trade imbalance that, that so many past American presidents had put us into. And, and critical minerals, when we think about that, we rely almost solely on the Chinese government, who right now, you know, we talk about geopolitical um, importance, not exactly our friend, not ever our friend. Um, but when we look at, at things, when we make things here in America, it is inherently more clean and more efficient than what any other country in the world can do. And an, an example, Andrew, that I, I like to, to go back on is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which cuts from Russia to Germany. And I should say cut because it's in past tense now, um, obviously with everything going on between Russia and the Ukraine, that pipeline was never turned on. In fact, Russia right now is sabotaging Nord Stream 1 and leaking oil into the Baltic Sea, which is a whole other conversation for a whole other day. But Nord Stream 2, which received the endorsement of the Biden administration, that's the only reason it, it, it was finished, is nearly three times dirtier than the Keystone Pipeline would have been here at home. So if we're talking about what's going to be best for the environment, if we talk about what's going to be best in terms of reducing carbon, it's made in America. It's American natural gas. It's American mining of critical minerals. It's American nuclear. It's American solar. It's American hydro. We're an all of the above organization. America needs to be leading the energy world because when we do it, not only positions us more strongly on a geopolitical scale, but it, it takes our reliance on foreign countries and flips that on its head. Then instead of us having to rely on Saudi Arabia for oil or on China for critical minerals or Colombia or any other country, now we can be the ones that are exporting not only energy, but the energy supply chain to the rest of the world. Yeah, Tyler Devane is joining us. You do something interesting here because I think this is one of those topics that really could get heterodox if people would just take it honestly and in good faith. It could cross through a lot of stuff. You highlight a couple of governors here and, you know, people are going to recognize the names. But before you say the names, I can look at this just as somebody follow. I'm like, OK, I've got a very conservative, you know, a governor that's being compared as kind of the next thing after Trump, if not a rival to Trump. I've got a governor who's very moderate as far as Republican governors go. I've got an Alaska governor, which is always kind of a unique thing. They always have kind of a libertarian conservative bent, but they're actually more moderate than some of the lower 48s. This is a wide swath of Republican leadership here, and they all kind of found the way to say the same things when it comes to this new energy stuff. Do you see a change coming in that way that it's cutting across some of these lines? Because if I just came out and said, well, Ron DeSantis did this, everybody starts thinking the culture war stuff. But he kind of fallen in line with these other governors on the same thing. Should we be addressing it that way, do you think? 
I do. And if you notice, uh, you know, the, the governors you mentioned, and I'll, I'll quickly run through the list, Governor DeSantis in Florida, working on, on hardening infrastructure in the state of Florida uh, to combat some of the effects of, of a changing climate, to work on that climate resiliency aspect. Governor Holcomb in Indiana, the Indiana legislature, which is a super majority um, Republican, they passed nearly a dozen clean energy bills. They touched on everything from electric vehicles to solar to nuclear. They're basically saying, and again, super majority in Indiana, they're basically saying, hey, if this is where uh, the economy is going, if it's where the free market is moving towards, we want to be a part of it. And then you have Alaska, Governor Mike Dunleavy, and um, you know Alaska has real problems with energy reliability, with energy sourcing in general. Uh, but what they're wanting to do is to prioritize their energy reliability, to prioritize their energy independence, um, and they're going to lead through clean and renewable energy technologies in order to achieve that. And, and so I think what you see is each of these governors, and all three of them are Republicans, um, they kind of encapsulate something that even just hit the news just last week, and that was Governor Youngkin in Virginia. Of course, we all know Glenn Youngkin started beginning the, uh, the conservative revolution that we should hopefully be seeing at the ballot box here in a few weeks. Uh, but he released a state energy plan that prioritizes an all of the above approach. And for too long, we've let all of the above fall into that political rhetoric that we talked about at the top of the conversation here. But all of the above means just that. It means that we prioritize um, uh, forms of energy, including natural gas that are going to ensure reliability, that we look at existing technologies like wind and solar and hydro, but then we also innovate and we move that free market uh, to a, a more efficient path. And, and if we're being honest, that's small modular nuclear. Um, and so I, I think what we're seeing here is governors responding to the needs of the day, to the needs of their state. Um, and they're doing that in a way that that isn't going to rely on artificial mandates and subsidies and, and deadlines, uh, but in a way that it's going to be able to be supported by the free market, not just in this moment, but for years to come. Yeah, Tyler DeVos joining us. When you look at something like Alaska, which is, of course, resource rich, we all know about, you know, the North Slope and the resources of Alaska. They're pushing for renewable energy. Places like West Virginia, traditional coal country, they're starting to really push renewable energy. A lot of battery powered um, companies moving into that area. When you see th Youngstown, Ohio, the old GM plant is now an electric vehicle factory. Mm -hmm. I still have questions about the economic viability of this because a lot of that's still working off subsidies. But you can't deny it's moving that way. Give me a time frame, though, for somebody that's a, that's healthily skeptical. I'm not just talking about the cranks. I'm talking about people like me who's just like, I think we'll get there, but I still think we're a ways away. 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? What are we talking here, do you think? I think we're looking in that, that 10 to 20 years. But the key here is that we don't give ourselves a hard and fast deadline. Uh, that we allow the clean energy transition to be just that, a transition. You know, one of uh, my favorite kind of side-by-side -side pictures that I've seen is a, a picture of Times Square in 1901. And it was, or early 1900s, I should say. And there are, are horse and buggies everywhere. And there's one car in Times Square. You fast forward, Times Square, same vantage point, 1920. There are cars everywhere. There's one or two horse and buggies across Times Square in New York City. And when you, you think about that, I, I think that's kind of how we're getting here um, with energy. Will we be employing 
more and more renewable and clean energy in the future? I believe so. I think that battery technology has a way to go before it can capture all of those. Because sometimes, let's be honest, the wind doesn't sh the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, and we need batteries to to capture the excess energy that's produced during those times. Uh, but I also think that is we look at you know wind subsidy sunset um, that's going to be a big indicator to are is this industry able to survive on its own and and i do think that it will there are a lot of studies out that uh show that it can be competitive without subsidies and and let's let the free market dictate where we need to go in the future yeah tyler devilius joining us uh the piece is in real clear energy we're going to link to like we always say Read the whole piece, decide for yourself. He's got a lot of links in here, too, that you need to click through and read the background. It's well-researched. Lots of stuff to go through. Tyler, let folks know where they can follow you until we get you back on Hertel and hear from you next time, my friend. Thanks, Andrew. You can uh, follow me on my personal account at Tyler Davilius. That's D-U-V-E-L-I-U-S. Um, and my, I have to plug my company's social media as well. It's at cons, C-O-N-S, Energy Net um on twitter and look forward to, to being able to engage with you all on online yeah we'll do that we'll put all those links in there uh it's a topic that's just going to be something we talk about over and over again so we'll definitely have you back to talk about some more appreciate your time tyler thank you sir thanks so much andrew appreciate it yes sir appreciate it Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. 
with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.